Welcome back, everybody, to episode number 42 of the Roses and Rhetoric podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Hackett. Joining me, as always, my charming co-host, Joseph Stanford. <laughs> Joe, and, and a bittersweet episode today. We're concluding our discussion of a book that I think we both very much enjoy, David Deutsch's The Beginning of Infinity. Today, we'll be talking about chapter 17 and chapter 18. Uh, both in their own way, kind of serving as concluding chapters for the book, and a lot of interesting ideas that are left with the reader um, when the book ends. But before getting to those things, we have a couple of fun announcements before we get into the more serious discussion again of the beginning of Infinity. Um, we are going to be joined today in about 20, 30 minutes from our film correspondent, who's going to be joining us to actually share the music review uh, live with us today. That'll be a lot of fun. We have a, an album of the week review as well. And lastly, it's certainly not, certainly not least, we have an exciting announcement. If anybody enjoyed our episode with Patrick Jacobs staying up, that was episode number 23 of, uh, of, of this show. We were talking with the author of Medical Nihilism. That author and philosopher of science has be has begun their own YouTube channel. It's called Phi-Sci, P-H-I-S-C-I. Don't my spelling on that if you would. Um, and it uh, looks like a lot of fun. I haven't had a chance to watch any yet. Uh, just for many people that were talking with Jacob Singh about his book, Medical Nihilism, which was a really interesting book. Um, it has interesting tie-ins actually, I thought with, with David Deutsch's book as well. But uh, anyway, Joe, I think we're both pretty excited to, to, to see Jacob join us among the uh, among the uh, YouTube creators, as it were. Yeah, it's uh, this, his channel is hot off the press. Um, I haven't had a chance to go look at it yet, but I'm super excited to go start digging into it because he's a real interesting guy, got some real interesting ideas. So definitely looking forward to that. Yes, it was. Uh, that was definitely one of our more popular uh, videos. So, you know, he began his channel, reached out to us and, you know, asked us to help spread the word. And we are certainly happy to do so. He was a great guest. We hope to have him on again in the future. Um, I think medical research in general is going to be a, a hot topic for quite some time. And discussions about medical progress in more broadly are going to be hot, uh, a hot issue as well, and primarily because there's a lot of different paths people want to go down. And the one that Jacob argues in his book is one that is not, uh, not always given as much attention as it were things about, you know, focusing on patient comfort over necessarily trying to find cures, that kind of thing. Interesting points of discussion. And we really enjoyed having him. and his book is definitely worth reading. Again, that book was medical nihilism, but Joe enough, enough uh, window dressing. It's time to hop into the, into the meat time to hop into the beginning of infinity chapter oh, hold on. oh go ahead go ahead still uh, before we get there i have still some, some more uh, throat clearing before we get into the into the fun no go, yeah. ahead. go ahead a little a little bit more throat clearing so uh just a little update on the the joe situation oh yes yeah uh, of course of course <laughs> uh currently i sit here today in my hotel room in florence italy um, I think last time we spoke, I was in Rome. Since then, uh, I went to Capri, which is a little island off the coast of Naples. So I spent some time in Naples as well. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I went to the island of Capri. It's a very, like, mountainous island. It's got a lot of hills. I started to feel a little, uh, a little tired as I was walking up and down the hills in uh, Capri, carrying all the luggage and whatnot. 
Um, you know, so I thought some island relaxation might help me a little bit, which it did. Got to spend all day on a boat going around the island. Um, came back, came back to Naples, headed up north to Florence, took the three-hour bus ride. Uh, went into a pharmacy, grabbed a COVID test, tested positive. Um, person I'm traveling with uh, also tested positive for coronavirus. Shocking. Uh, <laughs> once again, I am uh, in European exile. Uh, this time, not because I'm waiting for my credit card, but because uh, I have COVID-19. So. Wonderful. Uh, well, how do you feel? Uh, well, like I said, I, it started coming on. I just felt like real tired. Like I got like easily winded. Sure. I mean, I still like exercised and like went on all these like excursions and went out all day. And did a, You know, it didn't really miss a beat. Um, I started to get like a little bit of a rash yesterday, though. And that's kind of what prompted me to to go get tested. Um, so, yeah, I got tested. Uh, I'm not vaccinated. The person I'm with is vaccinated and they also got tested positive and have similar um effects of covid so just hunkering down here for the next few days going to take some more of these take-home tests which i don't know if these take-home tests are available in the u.s or not but they're pretty common over here in europe and how uh, long is your uh, quarantine how what's the uh how long do you have to be in quarantine uh the guidance is 10 days 10 days so yeah 10 days. i'm gonna keep taking the uh, Take a test. test. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we wish so, I'm just going to keep taking tests. Recovery. <laughs> so, yeah. where, so where are you right now? I'm just curious. What I'm in, I'm in uh, Florence, Italy. So it's one of the more okay. northern. And and the thing about Italy is that it's very different north to south. Like it's just the people look different, the culture is different. It's not nearly as sketchy up here in like northern Italy as it is in like say Naples or mm. that's as far south as I went, but. Uh, and when you're in Naples, you're on the bus or something, you really got to keep a, keep a close eye and hand on all your stuff or you'll get, you'll definitely get jacked. But up here, it seems pretty, uh, pretty calm. Closer to Switzerland, you get more uh, peaceful feels. Closer. So, oh, okay. Well, that makes, you know, as you get closer and closer to the, to the uh, neutral territory, I guess. So. Yeah, exactly. So it, if I, if I seem a little out of it today, uh, it's because I have COVID. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. with, with that being said, I did manage to do the reading. Good. Uh, I did, read it today. I don't uh, necessarily remember it, but we'll see. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, Stumble through it one way or another. Uh, as as the show, as as Andy Dwyer says in Parks and Rec, the show must go wrong. So we'll have to <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to continue continue for no i'm sorry to hear that you're sick uh you seem to be in good spirits we'll hope for a speedy recovery and uh we'll check in you know next week will be about seven days so you know we'll see how you're feeling then hopefully another good report but now it is time yes up into the beginning of infinity as we round out our discussion of this book 18 chapters we've been talking about this book it's been uh, several episodes probably close to two months if i had to guess um we're opening up on chapter 17, a chapter on a, a chapter which is called Unsustainable and opens up with an interesting story about different perspectives or different takes on how to think about the people or rather the civilization rather that met their demise on Easter Island. 
what were your what were your thoughts on that story? The uh, you know, if I had to put it, you know, basically the the David Deutsch version of what went wrong versus the you know David Attenborough take of what went wrong. And, be, and right. rather than saying David Deutsch, we ought to give credit to, of course, a huge source of inspiration, as David Deutsch says in in the book. Um, there was a television program and later a book called The Ascent of Man. Uh, yep. And I'm looking at, I'm trying to find the author right now. I won't find it. I'll find it later. Anyways, the, the author of The Ascent of Man gave kind of his version of what went wrong on Easter Island in his program. And basically, to summarize it, it was that the people of Easter Island were not adaptive enough and innovative enough, as they, as they should have been, uh, to understand the changes that were happening to their island and to essentially adapt and overcome them with improvements in technology, decision-making, et cetera. David Attenborough rather gives, in, in some sense, the opposite point of view, which was that the, um, the uh, civilization on, on Easter Island was uh, met, met, met its demise through environmental destruction, that that was the root cause of what went wrong with Easter Island. And, the, and I think his name was like Brunikowski or something like that, the author of it. Yeah, J Jacob Brunowski, B-R-O-N-O-W-S-K-I. So I thought that was an interesting discussion on conservation versus innovation, which obviously is very much in vogue right now as we're talking about climate change, right? And those, mm -hmm. those are very important ideas to have. So before we get into there, let's just stick with the, the chapter a little bit more. Do you, do you agree with that? Let me let me ask you. I was trying to summarize this chapter, Joe. Let me know if you agree with this summary or not. The history of humans is the history of ideas, not the history of biogeography. Yeah. So if I remember right, he was talking about Easter Island and how the Easter Islanders uh, they ceased to exist because they of their deforestation efforts. Like they just consumed all their forests, which essentially one step led to another which made the island uninhabitable for them at that point and um like you said like the david attenborough type was saying that this was a result of people abusing their environment and using up their their environment to the point where it drove them out where the counterpoint of view is this was like a static environment a static society the people that inhabited the easter island so uh the problem wasn't that they consumed their natural resources um the problem was that they didn't weren't able to adapt and overcome the lack of trees they had or lack of forests or whatnot. Um, he did, yeah. And then he did start talking about in a later chapter, some other examples of modern day examples. I know he wanted to touch on those later, but uh, that's essentially what I took away from that chapter. Not a, not a whole lot of meat in this one, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I think more kind of rehashing this distinction between a dynamic and a static society. At the people of Easter Island, they were essentially set in their ways. You know, they were not developing new technology when they were struggling with problems of of you know the deforestation affecting the soil erosion, etc. They continued to use the wood to make these statues that really weren't doing anything. There were these giant rocks of people's heads that were, that were just, you know, statues and they weren't really dealing with the problem that they had to be dealing with. And what was, what was interesting is that, you know, David Attenborough, essentially when he went to Easter Island, 
was was you know heaping on the compliments you know wow you know this this civilization you know they were they were advanced and they were doing all these interesting stone carvings and what Dave, and, and what David Deutsch points out is that actually there are other groups even uh, I think even groups nearby that were actually more advanced than these people were that there was nothing really special about the technological achievements that the people in Easter Island were using to build their their stone statues there wasn't really anything remarkable about it and mm-hmm. What you would have hoped is that a dynamic society would have been able to do two things. One, recognize their impact on the environment and to put together some kind of explanatory knowledge about what they were doing, and then adapt, either leave the island, go somewhere else, build other things, et cetera, to deal with their problems. Rather, what they continued to do was to just keep on doing their old tried and true method of statue building, consuming more resources, consuming more lumber, but not really improving their knowledge of what was happening around them. And as a result, the civilization collapsed. So you have yeah. in this ability, a dynamic society can change and a static one cannot. Um, I thought that was interesting. I liked, uh, I, I, I think this is in chapter 17, maybe it was in chapter 18, but this notion of why it's very hard to predict the future because you know, basically uh, no model can predict the future because no model can predict future technology. And that's by definition. If we could, if we could predict future technology, we would just build it now. We would just already have it. We don't have because we don't know how to do it. We have speculations about it. We think, you know, maybe fusion power could work in a certain way or not. But we don't actually know because if we knew, we would just be doing it. So I thought that was an interesting point as well. And um, you know, I think chapter seventeen essentially ends with a question of whether or not we're willing to live in a dynamic society or not, that a dynamic society has its own challenges. It requires that we be adaptive. It requires that we change things. It requires that we adapt to the world as it changes around us, including very quickly. I mean, technology changes very quickly all the time, and that can obviously have impact on us. And so we always have the option to just stop, to just stop innovation and to stop technology, et cetera. I hope that we don't make that choice, but even a dynamic society has its own challenges as well. And so I thought, I thought 17 was, you know, essentially posing that question, you know, what, what kind of world do we want to live in? And, um, you know, there's really only two yeah. choices. There's the choices of living in, in a static world where we try to change nothing, or we live in a world where we embrace innovation, embrace change, embrace technology, um, et cetera. So yeah, this would be my kind of overview of chapter 17. Uh, very, yeah. And, and to, uh, to rehash on that, and yeah, it seems obvious. Like when you pr- present the two options as being a static society or dynamic society, it's, right? It's pretty obvious what the right choice is. But um, I guess for those living in the static societies, it's not so obvious. Uh, I remember at one point in the chapter, I think David Deutsch brings up how, uh, as the people like as they're starving or as their society's collapsing, instead of directing their efforts and resources towards addressing this forestry problem or this resource problem. Um, they just double down on building right. statues, right? Like they just double down on moving right. giant rocks into a right. position so that making the problem worse because they they were they yeah. were cutting down the trees to make the paths. So it was like as yeah. as things are getting worse, they <laughs> double down on the bad behavior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like uh, cutting holes in the Titanic or something. Like that. Right, right. But, it's like it, you no, know, that's actually a perfect example. <laughs> Imagine being on on the Titanic and you're using the metal of the hull of the ship to make little idols, the ship is beginning to sink. And you think, you know what we ought to be doing? 
cutting more metal off the hold of the ship to make more little right. items. You would say, uh, I don't think so. But, no, but notice, that seems funny to us because we understand the relationship between a boat having holes in it and a, and a boat sinking. Well, now that seems pretty obvious, but it's a little more difficult if you're trying to understand the relationship between, you know, cutting down trees and, you know, how the effect of soil erosion maybe affects something else. But nothing would have prevented the people from on Easter Island from learning about that, from, from, from studying that as a, as a scientific phenomena and to begin to understand their impact. And, and, and this is mm-hmm. the point that David Bush is making. It's like to, to blame it on conservation is in some sense to miss the point. Their real challenge is that they weren't able to understand what they were doing. They weren't building scientific knowledge that either allowed them to do something else or to come up with a way of coping with the damage they were causing. So maybe there was a way that they could have either not used lumber or if they really needed to use the lumber, was there a way that they could have mitigated the impact of soil erosion? You know, like a, well, right. whatever, whatever civil engineering project, you, you know, you can do to do that. But both of those approaches rely on you living in a dynamic society that's constantly creating new knowledge. If you lack that process, then you're just going to do what you already have been doing. It's because in a sense that that's all that you can do. You're just repeating the old trick, hoping that it works. In their case, it was building these yeah. stone statues and uh, did not work out for them very well. Yeah, and um, the other part of this chapter, like you mentioned, was uh, talking about how futile it is to try and predict the future and right. predict what the future solutions will look like. And uh, I like the, I really like the example he gave in this chapter, which was uh, some scientist or some smart guy earlier in the yeah. century uh, in the 1970s made a prediction that, um, well, at the time, they were just starting to be these color TVs were starting to be coming to predict production. Um, and he was really concerned about the color TVs coming into production because they use uh, some elements that was at the time was a very rare element. And he was under the impression that there was only a finite amount of that element on the earth. So in essence, he thought that eventually all the color TVs that could be made would be made and not everyone would get one. And only the higher class people of society would have a color TV and all the lower class people wouldn't have one. And that would create a divide in society. It would right. create a caste system. And it's just a, a frivolous, decadent item that people would have that has no like useful useful uh, benefits. Um, the color TV is what he was saying. Um, but then I think David Deutsch at the time was like, wait, what if, wait a second. What if uh, we get better at mining this rare element? What if we get better at, um, you know, producing this element, getting it out of the ground? What if we find another technology that doesn't rely on it? What if there's another element out there we could use? And then, uh, you know, lo and behold, we discover new ways of making TVs, the liquid crystal display that uses real common elements. And he, we also find ways right. of mining that super rare element to the point where each person could have dozens of these TVs if they wanted. Right. But, right. Um, and then he, he I, like, I really liked how he gives that example and then he extends it onto something like climate change. Right. Like he says, okay, yeah, like we understand that the physics, it's, it's pretty inevitable that adding the CO2 to the environment will make it warmer, but uh are all these models correct like what, right what these models can't consider any innovation we have. it doesn't consider if you know propagation of nuclear reactors or if we find ways to pull air pull the co2 out of the right. atmosphere he talks about examples like if we really care it seems like we're more it's more of a form of punishing ourselves and 
to reduce our carbon emissions rather than finding solutions. And then he hints that like, if we want really wanted to define solutions, we would be looking at um, generating more clouds over the oceans to reflect light, or maybe sucking the CO2 out of the atmosphere, like more engineered solutions. Right. But it, it, it says that yeah. what we're doing is very different than, than those solutions. Yeah, it's, and, and it certainly can be. And that's, you know, I, I think the best way to frame the conversation on climate change is in is a technology conversation. What do we what, what do we need to do? What can we currently do? How do we bridge that gap? Um, I, for a long time, have been suspicious. Continue to be suspicious that we'll make any real progress on climate change by people reducing their consumption or really anything along those lines, conservation, etc. Uh, I don't see it. I mean, I really don't. I don't think people want to live with less than what they have. And so the, the innovation, the technology, therefore, is to figure out a way of doing it. I think the best definition of, of technology comes from Peter Thiel doing more with less. And I think that's the perfect way to think about technology with regards to climate change. How do we do more things with less energy? Or how do we do more things with less emissions? Or how do we do more things with less environmental impact? Those are all good questions to ask because you're figuring out how to do more of something with less of a bad thing. I think it's not a good solution to say, well, how do we, how do we do with less technology or how do we do with less consumption? I don't think people are really gonna buy that. And I don't know that they even should. I, I don't see why we should limit ourselves arbitrarily uh, given that there's really no reason to think that we're at the limit of our technological abilities. And so, yeah. you know, that would be my, that'd be my, uh, my take on that. Um, it's like once you, once you get some technology, you can't give it up. Once you get that color television, you, you no, can't right. give it up. And, and, and nor should we. I like having the internet. I think plenty of people right. like having, right? I think so. It's always a matter of figuring out. Again, problems are inevitable. Problems are solvable. Okay. Climate change is a problem. Fine. We can deal with it without having to give up advanced industrialized civilization. That has also given us so many other benefits. To throw the baby out with the bathwater in that regard would be, in my mind, irresponsible. So, um, I, Joe, I just saw our special treat has arrived uh, right on time. Our movie, our, our film review for the week to deliver it live in person. Uh, Perfect. So before I let him in, do you want to say any closing thoughts on Chapter 17 before we move over to our movie reviewer? Uh, no, let's do it. Let's roll right, right into it. Very good. Very good. Joining us, a very special guest joining us now. Hopefully it works. No, I'm kidding. Hey Joe, when you when you come on, we are recording. Just giving you the heads up. <laughs> Joe, you are you're you're muted. Let me see if I can unmute you, or rather, ask to unmute you. Ask to unmute. I just asked him politely to unmute with my button on Zoom. Joe, can you hear us? There he goes. All right, Joe, we are awesome. recording. You are joining us. We just finished up a conversation of chapter 17 of David Bush's book, The Beginning of Infinity. Uh, and it's rounded out a conversation on climate change, which should be focusing more on technology and conservation, mm. letting you know what you're walking into. Um, <laughs> so let me give you a quick introduction real quick for people who don't know. Joe Matz, of course, uh, is not only a friend of myself and of Joe, uh, but is also uh, been well known in, in uh, not only our circle of friends, but more probably than that, as a as a very astute film critic. So we're happy to have Joe Mass with us today. 
uh, to share his film review. And Joe, I don't even know what movie we're talking about today. I know. I need to start uh, messaging you guys earlier, like you said, so that you can have a chance to <laughs> actually watch these movies. <laughs> no, that is that is okay. We we have enjoyed your reviews last uh, as of late. And while I haven't seen the movies that you've reviewed when we, when we have been reading the reviews, I normally have seen a couple of the review of the movies that you give as kind of if you like this, watch this type thing. So okay. So so far they've been uh, they've been pretty good. Um, I will I will preface Joe Matz by saying I think the only thing with him I disagree with on movies per se is that he <laughs> thinks M Night Shyamalan's best film is Science, which I think is absolutely. I'm sorry, that's just true. Absolutely ridiculous. In <laughs> um, any event, Joe, when you're ready, take it away with your review for this week. All right. So our movie this week is The Rental. And we're. <laughs> well, the, the good news is this one is free to watch now on Amazon Prime. So that's where oh, you can see it. Great, great. Um, what it's about is two couples rent an oceanside vacation home for a celebratory getaway, but become suspicious that their host may be spying on them. So, uh, as with every week, I asked, is it good? It's almost two movies, and one of them is much better than the other. On the one hand, it's an engrossing relationship drama that establishes who each character is and the dynamics between them. On the other, it's a well-shot but slight horror film that leaves you with more questions than answers. Dave Franco's directorial debut benefits greatly from a strong cast throughout, though, while he and Joe Swanberg craft a well-observed script in regards to character, even if they struggle to bring the plot home. Dan Stevens and Sheila Vand, no strangers to horror, with starring turns in The Guest and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night between them, are Charlie and Mina, business partners who might be a little bit too close. Jeremy Allen White of Shameless plays Josh, who doubles as both Charlie's brother and Mina's boyfriend. A reformed fuck-up, Josh worries he's not good enough for Mina, and rounding out the quartet is Miss Dave Franco herself, Allison Brie, as Charlie's understanding wife. All four leads, plus Toby Huss of AMC's underseen gem, Halt and Catch Fire, who plays the property's unsettling manager, are very good in their roles. Stevens toes the line of being both an asshole and someone the rest of these characters can still like. Van sells me his conflicted feelings in regards to the two brothers. White gives Josh a good-natured charm while hinting at the anger he has bottled up. And Brie adds some needed humor, especially when her character takes ecstasy. And while Stevens and White don't look a lot like siblings, you buy their familial bond thanks to good chemistry and Franco's unsurprising ability to write characters who interact like real brothers. The film could have stayed firmly in the relationship lane and been one of the better recent indie dramas, but instead it turns to horror. To be fair, its horror elements aren't awful. Franco has a solid grasp of atmosphere and building suspense. He intersperses early parts of the film with the characters taking a hike or enjoying a hot tub with point of view shots from someone watching them from a distance that successfully builds up the creepiness. It's when it goes full tilt into horror in its final act that it loses its grasp. There's one legitimately frightening moment but it feels rushed as if Franco and Swanberg, whose own films tend to be largely improvised and light on plot, didn't have a good idea on how to end their story. So they just wanted to get it over with as quick as possible. The ending does leave 
The film opened to a potential sequel, though, so maybe they'll have a better handle on the entire movie next time. Uh, my grade is a B minus, and uh, my also watches are The Guest, which also stars Dan Stevens, which is almost like Terminator by way of John Carpenter. I think it's like one of the better thrillers of the last decade. And then You're Next, which is kind of a home invasion of a bunch of rich people where people with masks come in and start murdering them. And it features Joe Swanberg, who co-wrote this movie, as one of the uh, asshole rich people who gets murdered. <laughs> well, always, always good. Always good when uh, we see some rich guy get murdered, right? No. <laughs> of course I'm kidding. Um, B minus. Joe, I noticed, you know, in your movie reviews, normally you don't give anything bigger, better than a B plus. You know, that's, uh, well, you tend to you gotta, a you gotta save it. That yeah, are, you gotta that are you gotta save the eggs. <laughs> <laughs> no good. All right. Well, I, I'm looking forward to this one. I've been looking for for a good uh, a good horror movie um, to watch. So this this sounds like yeah. David Franco is that from Disaster Artist? Is that yeah? So it's Dave Franco, brother? James Franco's brother. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. I really liked him in that movie, so I'll have to check this one out as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think the upside to this one is, as for a first film, I think it's good, and at least he definitely has the potential for even better films going forward. Did you say this was a directorial debut for him? Yeah, so it's the okay. first movie that Dave Franco's ever directed. All right, very good. Well, I'm looking forward. I I like. I think it's a good well, actor. Hopefully, he'll get that B plus on the next movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's just got to got to slowly work his way up towards the A. It's, it, I have a hard time seeing. I guess I don't really have reason for. For some reason, I picture him more as like a comedy writer. I guess I don't know why. If that's a fair thing for me to say, but I have a hard time seeing him do horror. I don't know. I, again, I don't really have a reason for thinking that. Well, right. I think it kind of makes sense that like he's able to put in bits of humor that make these characters feel like real people. Yeah. But then when he goes all the way into the horror part, that's where he kind of loses his way. It seems, Joe. There's been kind of a resurgence in people making more artistic horror films. I don't know if you agree with that. Mm. Thinking of like Us, uh, thinking of like um, the other one that I saw too. Cabin in the Woods. Uh, no, what, what's the one? I, I know the name of it, Joe. The one, the black guy goes visits, he, the black guy visits the white family and is like, oh, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. But it's like, totally not fine. Like they're trying to kill him or like take over his body. Right, wow. <laughs> that's the other Jordan Peele one, which oh, right. God. I'm blanking on for some reason right now. Get out. Yeah. Get out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which was yeah, which, fantastic. You're right. Yeah. When you mentioned Dave Franco as someone you imagine more of a comedic person, I immediately right. thought, I was like, well, Jordan Peele's actually pulled this right. off. Like, right. <laughs> and made two of the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm excited. You know, I, uh, I, I feel like the, the horror genre is uh, underserved with good movies. So hopefully, if, it definitely uh, is. If, if, if Franco sticks with it and, uh, and, and if Peele sticks with it, you know, we'll build up that genre a little bit and get some more weight in that, in that genre of, of film. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, Joe, that was an excellent review. I'll have to check it out uh, later on. Um, I think your film reviews so far have been a big hit, so we will uh, keep them coming. Nice to hear. And uh, they're a lot of fun. I know that I always enjoy them. I definitely, I watched the uh, Zombie War one that you mentioned that you reviewed a few weeks ago. Yeah, how, how did you like it? I thought it was, it was, what I always feel like if the movie delivers what you were expecting, it can't be that bad. I knew what I was watching yeah, too. That, that's was more like, or less what I got out of it too. Yeah, I was fine with it. I thought that was okay. 
Uh, the, the, the one thing I would advise people with the grades is most of the time, like you could argue me up a grade or down a grade for most of these movies. So I, I would always say, try to listen more to like my actual descriptions of what right. these movies are like to decide if you want to watch them. That's fair. That's Because if you hear Michael Bay's zombie movie, you're already probably in or out. Oh, no, right. Exactly right. Right, right. Again, no one's going like, oh, like Zack Snyder. I don't know. I mean, he was so good in this movie, but he really was not. It's like, you know what you're going to get from Yeah, Zack Snyder. I said Michael Bay, but. No, no, no. But I, know, it's almost the same guy. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know what you're getting. You know what you're getting. I was, yeah. uh, that was good. Um, so very good. All right, Joe. Well, that was a fun review. We appreciate it. You uh, joining us yeah, of course. For, for this one. We're trying to do it again next week. Um, for everybody else, keep on listening. Though you can, you're always free to listen if you want. Uh, but Joe and I are moving uh, the, the other Joe, my charming co-host not that you're not charming Joe uh, are moving on with the show so Joe, thank you for joining us yeah. we'll, we'll check in with you next week for another film yeah, thanks Joe, it's uh, a lot better to hear you read the reviews than watch me stumble through it So <laughs> I, I realized when writing this one thinking about actually saying it out loud that <laughs> I guess shouldn't just put in parentheses like the movies they're in because that doesn't flow very well. But, <laughs> so I apologize for not realizing that before. And uh, I'll give you guys a heads up. My goal for next week's movie, assuming I'm able to see it on Thursday or Friday, is uh, the Green Knight. Oh yeah, no, that one looks good. Okay, I've been seeing I've been seeing commercials for that one. So yes, hopefully, and I'll try and watch it as well. But yeah, hopefully we can do that review because that looks like a good movie. I'm, I'm excited to see that one. All right. Have a good one, guys. All right. See you, Joe. Thank you. All right. Hey, that went pretty seamless. I was, you know, Joe and I have had our, our fair share of Zoom glitches. This is 42 episodes. I think Zoom has been pretty good to us. Joe, I would, yeah. I would say. I would say it's been pretty it good. It almost looks like we know what we're doing now. It almost looks like we know what we're doing. We are going to keep on knowing what we're doing as we move on to the final chapter of the beginning of infinity. Joe, I wanted to open up this chapter. The chapter name is The Beginning, which is kind of funny because it's the last chapter, you know. But of course, in infinity, you're only ever at the beginning, right? So it makes sense. I wanted to start by reading the opening quote, um, which uh, uh, David Deutsch uh, gives from Isaac Asimov from his book, The End of Eternity. This is Earth. Not the eternal and only home of mankind, but only a starting point of an infinite adventure. All you need do is make the decision to end your static society. It is yours to make. With that decision came the end, the final end of eternity and the beginning of infinity. I thought that quote was great. Um, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, Isaac Asimov is a famous science fiction writer, scientist himself. I think he was a biochemist. Um, probably, probably more well known for being a science fiction writer. It's not surprising that Isaac Asimov was able to come up with, you know, that kind of understanding of, you know, the future of humanity. Because as a science fiction writer, this was, of course, he was consumed by this mentality. Um, I said this at, for chapter 17, I guess I'll, or I think I mentioned this in our last re review, but I guess I'll, I'll give it again. We, this book really is about presenting, I would argue, Joe, let me know if you agree with this. This book is about presenting human beings with a choice of what kind of species we want to be. And I would frame it more starkly than that. I would say this book is about humans deciding to live like humans 
are humans deciding to live like animals. That's how I see it. Either we embrace humanity, we embrace our powers, the powers of our mind, the power to be universal constructors, or we fall short of that and live as something less than humanity or achieving something less than humanity. That would be, I think, the, the, the fairest way to, uh, to paraphrase this chapter in this book. Yeah, it was a very bittersweet ending to the book. Um, I lo love the Isaac Asimov quote that started it off. Uh, I think I didn't realize it at the time, and I don't know if he alluded to it earlier, but um, it seems like that's where he got a lot of his nomenclature, like static society, dynamic society, and um, um, the beginning of infinity, the title of the book itself. And I, I didn't know that Isaac Asimov was that influential to David Deutsch for this. I mean, he's written books like, I think, iRobot, I right? And what, other, right. what else has he, has he made? Yeah, iRobot, he's famous for. Uh, he also wrote Foundation, which is like a, a multi-book series. It's also a famous book as well. Um, definitely an influential writer in the science fiction, in, in the science fiction community. Uh, and clearly clearly gave David Deutsch an idea of, you know, what potential human being, you know, what potential we have as human beings, you know, do we continue our journey, this infinite journey, or do we just hunker down and say, we've done enough and we give up, you know, right. living, living that way. Um, and it, it seems like he, it seemed like David Deutsch really took off the gloves for this one and uh, start really started digging into some some other people. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but I mean, even on the second page here, he's like uh, making jabs at Feynman for claiming for for speaking a language that implies a static society. Um, he started talking about Nick Bostrom and his uh, simulation right. theory argument, right? And poking uh, holes in that, and then uh, it seems like the list kind of just went on and on in this chapter. Did, did you uh, get that too? <laughs> I, I definitely, and I, I think the, the the common critique of David Deutsch is to challenge anybody when they say that we're at the end of something. There's this yeah. kind of this idea of being at the end of history that you know we've done it all. You know everything else from here now. It's going to be you know pretty simple to understand. We're going to pack on a few more decimal, you know, to to this constant that we discovered, or. You know, we'll do, you know, we'll make a more precise measurement of, of this, you know, thing, but nothing, nothing really will change that much. We're at the end of the road and everything else is just kind of, you know, a detail or an appendix. And David Doy says, well, first off, we know that that's not true because currently our two best explanations for the world are quantum mechanics and relativity that are absolutely incompatible with each other. So we know right. that we're not at the end of the road with physics. We, we know that we're not. We can, it, it's, nobody thinks that we, it, it is it is provable that those two theories are incompatible with each other. Okay, so then therefore we're not at the end of physics. Well, if you're not at the end of physics, that's like the most fundamental thing. How could you possibly think that you're at the end of anything else? It doesn't make any sense at all. Um, technology, does anybody think that we're at the end of technology that will just make computers a little bit faster? That, that, that's completely ridiculous. Things we haven't even done in any meaningful way, we haven't even begun to do actual artificial intelligence or AGI. We haven't done anything with artificial creativity yet. We don't understand how the human brain works. We don't understand how consciousness works. What are we at the end of? We're at the end of nothing. We're only at the beginning. We have so much more to learn, so much more to discover. And as we discover more things about those things, we will have even more questions to answer afterwards. So 
I think David Deutsch, his attack on Feynman, Feynman, I think, kind of fell into that idea of thinking that we were kind of getting to the end of physics. And that was more or less what David Deutsch was attacking. And it was completely mm-hmm. ridiculous. We know that we're not at the end. Of, we, we, we are not at the end of, uh, of anything and uh, certainly not of physics. Um, and I think it's important for people to realize that because I think there's a sense that people have right now that, that there's nothing left to do. There's nothing left to invent, nothing left to discover. It's just kind of, you know, the same old things being repackaged. Well, that may be happening now, but that isn't because there's nothing left good to invent. It's just because we're not thinking properly about it. And we're not looking for those inventions or we have this, we just haven't found them yet. It's not because they're not out there. I mean, again, just close your eyes and imagine, do people really think that in a million years, this world has to look the way that it looks now, or could it look different? If it could look different, the question is how and through what process, innovation would be one. So I think I, I agree with David Deutsch's attack on that on that end of history type thing. I think it's always silly and always uh, always in, in some way pretentious to think that you know enough to say this is the, this is the end. I think it's completely ridiculous. Yeah, I think you summed it up well with this last sentence he wrote: "What lies ahead of us is, in any case, infinity. All we can choose is whether it is an infinity of ignorance or an infinity of knowledge, wrong or right." death or life. And again, that just really rehashes the entire book there and just the, those few sentences. Um, yeah, I, I also like how he mentioned his other book, uh, The Fabric of Reality in this chapter a lot too. I'm definitely going to be interested in reading that now yes. that this book's completed. I, I think that would be a, a fun book to read as well. I would say the two, the two, uh, I mean, they're the main enemy that David Deutsch lays out is this notion of a static society. You know, that's what we have to avoid. And I, I agree with that. Um, and that isn't to say again, that dynamic societies don't have their own challenges. There, it absolutely does. In fact, it creates new challenges as it creates innovation. That's the nature of, you know, it's right. when we, when it we create something, right. When we create something new, we will inevitably expose ourselves to, uh, to problems that were unforeseen. It, it will, it, it, it is a guarantee to happen. It, there's no way to avoid it. And what we have to be better at doing is understanding that that is the case. And I would argue embracing that as a consequence, essentially, that we are going to create things that we don't, or we're going to create problems that we didn't expect to create that will have to be addressed. And um, I would say, you know, the main highlight of this book is that it's a very inviting book. Anybody, any, anybody can live in a dynamic society. You're not limited by your race or your ethnicity or your religion or your whatever. Any society can be dynamic. In fact, every culture, or rather I'd say every, every, uh, every dynamic society that he talks about in this book is, is, is juxtaposed to another group of people who are very similar to them, but run a, in a static society. That would be the case of Spartan and Athens. You know, these were the exact same people almost. One was dynamic, one was static. And we, we see the, um, the consequences of those worldviews that Athens created all of this, you know, impressive reforming government, art, technology, et cetera, and uh, Spartan did not. So I, I think the choice is clear between, you know, how we want to live as a people and that we can all live that way. And um, 
I mean, it's it's just it, I I don't want to repeat myself too much. I think I probably already have. Uh, but basically, I would say, you know, the path forward is embracing the challenges of a dynamic society, not wishing for a simpler society that probably didn't even exist. And even if it did exist, would have its own problems. That would be my fairest way of summarizing the book so far, <laughs> or as a whole. Right, right, and. Um... I just hope that this information finds its way to the right hands. Like, yeah, it's great that you and I can read it and understand it, but we're really not the policymakers that are running the show and determining what type of society we live in, I, you know? Um, but I think nonetheless, it's good to spread the word and I'm hopeful and optimistic that we in the U.S. will remain in a dynamic society. And, uh, I don't know. Hopefully it's, it's inevitable that that will be the case. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, it certainly is not inevitable. Um, again, it's, we can always make the choice to live in a static world. And I, I hope that we don't either. Um, but now that we have an album of the week review, why don't, we, why don't we read that real quick and then we can give some summarizing thoughts on the book before closing out the episode. All right, let's jump into it. So, We've had a few few uh, few weeks here where we haven't had an album review, but we're happy to announce that this week uh, our musical correspondent is coming back strong. And this week he's coming back strong with an album called I'm Still in Love With You by Al Green. If you don't know who Al Green is, I, the Roses and Rhetoric music correspondent and an agnostic, am praying for you. This week's album is I'm Still in Love With You by the previously mentioned Reverend Al Green. Released in 1972, I'm Still in Love With You is a soul album filled with songs about love. The instrumentation on I'm Still in Love With You is what you'd expect from a standard soul record in the 70s with guitar, bass, drums, an organ, a string section, and a horn section. Musical arrangements throughout the album are simple and create a soft backdrop that grooves. What is so special about the music on the album is that it does not get in the way or clash with Al Green's voice. I don't often think of vocals as an instrument, but Al's voice is so perfect that it's hard not to. The timbre of Al's voice is so tender and silky. His tone is pure. The title track, I'm Still in Love With You, sways with the subtle ecstasy and warmth of being deeply in love. Al sings with such soft ease, and his falsetto makes your heart pitter-patter. Love and Happiness transitions to a raw groove, with the organ creating a shadowy vibe. Al sings about the, dar the darker aspects of love, such as jealousy, or the unwilling compromises that sometimes need to be made out of love. On the track Simply Beautiful, Al sings at a whisper, with his heavenly falsetto over a pillowy backdrop. Simply beautiful is that moment when you catch your partner doing something mundane in the perfect light and realizing just how completely and utterly irresistible they are. Sometimes there is nothing you can do but simply admire the one you love. Then there is the cover of the classic Roy Orbison tune, Oh Pretty Woman. Al slows it down and sings much softer than Roy does. The snare drum doesn't blare quite like the original, and the organ creates a sweet, dreamy aura to match Al's voice. I personally like it 
a little better than Roy Orbison's version, but that's just me. For the best listening experience, I'd recommend listening to Al Green's I'm Still in Love with you alongside someone you adore. The two of you can figure out the rest. There well, you have it. This sounds like a nice, uh, you know, when you do your day in the life of the music review, it's be a nice one to add in there. Oh, amazing. The music correspondent coming back strong with this one. Coming back strong, happy to have him back. Uh, and of course, killing it with the review as always. And of course, a great album as well. Al Green, of course, a legend. Um, and rightfully so. We were talking about the objective standards of art. Certainly Al Green reaches the high mark of objectivity. Um, it would be hard to vary Al Green and still get a good song. So um, very good. Joe, let's take about five minutes or so. Let's, let's close out this book. This has been quite a journey. Um, I don't want to spend too much time repeating ourselves. So we're, we're, we're pretty dangerously in that territory as it is, but I almost don't want to stop because I don't want our, our time with this book to be over. Um, final thoughts on the beginning of Infinity. I, I think that this book, the real, real application of it is it provides a basis of framework um, for reasoning for anyone, whether it's you know a student, whether it's someone that's not interested in science, um, whether it's someone that's an artist, like anyone can get a benefit from this book just by reading it and understanding like what makes an argument sound. Like what, what is sound thinking? Um, what is thinking that is limiting yourself? Like what is static thinking? What is dynamic thinking? Um, it provides you with a lens to look at society, kind of judge social issues, judge different topics, different problems that you see throughout the world and look at it through this lens and understand where the path of each decision will take you. Like, will this path take you to a, to a dead end, to like a static ending, or will this decision take you somewhere that can lead to more knowledge, more flourishing, more, more, more knowledge, and also what to expect from it. Like it also, there's a sense of comfort in knowing that in, if you go down a path that has an infinite amount of answers, an infinite amount of problems, an infinite amount of uh, solutions, then that shouldn't really be an uncomfortable place to be, but that should be a, a comfortable place to be, to be in that place of ambiguity, to be in that place of, of uh, you know, inevitable problems popping up. To get, to get comfortable with that position is uh, a good place to be, like I said. And... Um, it's just one of those books where the ideas kind of stick in your head and they stay there and that filter is just there for the rest of your life. Um, how about you? What are your, what were your takeaways? I like in this last chapter, he ends with a rant about this idea of normal, about things that we accept as normal. One of them is the idea of death or not even normal, like, you know, that it's okay or something that, you know, we kind of accept it. Um, right. We don't need to actually dying is a physical process as a result can be understood at a physical level and can be cured and can be treated like a disease, which I think it should be treated as. Um, he gives other, other such examples like that. I like the idea of challenging the status quo. Um, it's always a healthy thing to do. Um, this wasn't so much covered in the book, but I think it ties very nicely into it. We need to overcome our current aversion to the quote, rapidity of change 
And rather than being fearful of the rapidity of change, un take that as a problem, understand the challenges of rapid changes in society and propose solutions that address those problems that don't address it by thwarting uh, the innovation in the first place. Don't solve artificial intelligence taking away jobs from truck drivers by banning artificial trucks. That's a, that's a bad idea. Find a better way of handling it. Do the, do the truck drivers actually bring something else that you want to have them in the cab for another reason? Is it better to have a person and a machine drive a car? I don't know. But let's ask those kind of questions, not the kind of questions like let's ban technology. Those are, those are bad paths to go down. Um, I think it's important that we also don't fall for blind optimism that I, again, like I said, certainly when, you, when we live in a changing technological society, there will be real problems. And we just because problems haven't been problems in the past, don't mean they won't become problems in the future. Uh, we've learned that from, from uh, Nassim Taleb, of course. So don't, don't become blind optimists. Understand the technology does bring problems with it and work to understand those problems and then to propose uh, solutions. Those are my two you know, kind of things for chapter 18. But more broadly, I wanted to talk about uh, this notion of being sustainable. Um, I did a little bit of work with Engineers Without Borders in college and I will never forget, it was a very, I, I enjoyed the work that we did there. And I remember we had a conference where it was, you know, the president of EWB was there and he was talking. He was saying, you know, I hear a lot of projects here talking about sustainable. And I'm just wondering, you know, what you all think that word means. To me, what sustainable means is that you have people with markets that are able to make a living and to make money and to, to thrive in their communities. It has nothing to do with, you know, is this plastic recyclable or not? And I thought that is genius. In fact, that is what makes something sustainable when it can be, when it can be sustained on its own. And um, really, I think the only path we have as a, as a society that is sustainable as a path forward is to seek good explanations and as a result, to seek explanatory knowledge through creativity and criticism. Again, a path beginning of infinity, but that's really only what we can do because choosing a static society will inevitably lead us to, to, to demise when we are faced by a problem that we currently do not have a solution for. So to be sustainable, quote unquote, for us living in, a, in an advanced society is to continue the path of technological development and innovation. That is sustainable. The alternative is not sustainable. Um, I love this book. I have read maybe three books in the past year or so that have really changed the way that I view the world. One of them would be Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. The other would be Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And the third would be this one. This book is mandatory reading. I've said that now for a few books, but this really is <laughs> mandatory reading uh, for this day and age because it will create uh, a, a group of people, hopefully as many as possible, who understand what actually is and what actually is not sustainable. This book gives you a sustainable path. This book right here. So that's, that's what I have, Joe. Do you want to add anything else to that? Wow, no, I can't follow that up. <laughs> okay. Uh, we love this book. David Deutsch, if you're listening to this show, uh, thank you for writing this book. You're an excellent writer. Of course, you've written out two books that I know of. Don't mention one earlier in the show, Fabric of Reality. We'll have to read that one eventually as well. Um, but thank you for coherently putting 
these ideas together in one place. That is not an easy thing to do. Joe and I, I'll, I'll say it for me, Joe, let me know if you agree with it. You and I struggle to even review the book. I mean, we have a hard time even reviewing it. Imagine right. what it took to write it. I mean, God damn, that's a lot of work. And it's well-written and it's, it, it's an easy read, actually. I mean, I really think anybody could yeah. read this book, right? I mean, you know, we're not all going to get the part about the multiverse, but that's okay. I don't know that that's that important of a chapter. I'm just being honest. I think for, for society, the real important stuff is, I think, other parts of this book. Anybody could read it. Anybody could understand. Um, I have COVID and I was able to read it. <laughs> yeah, Joe read it with COVID. So, um, so if you're healthy, you have no excuse. Um, so go out there and buy this book. It's not a very expensive book. Uh, read it. Let us know what you think below. This has been a great series of episodes that we've done covering this book. Uh, we covered the whole thing, all 18 chapters. So, you know, if you're, if you're just seeing this episode, you like what we're talking about, visit our, our, our previous ones. And I'm also going to put together a playlist of just these episodes. So if you just want to send someone the playlist of our discussion of this book, you'll be able to do that uh, as well. Um, and of course, check back with us weekly. We have new episodes every week and follow us on our Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. Follow Joe at Jose four underscores Cuervo. That's for uh, Instagram and Twitter. And of course, we're on YouTube as well. Just search Roses Rhetoric. We will come right up. Um, I'm not sure what we're doing for next week's episode. We'll have to plan that out, but uh, we'll deal with that one off there. But uh, no, this is a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this, Joe. Excellent book recommendation. Enjoyed covering it here on the show. Everybody else, we'll have to see you all next week. Until then, ciao.